Today I have two things of importance for you. The first, an official statement by Cardinal Walter Brandmuller on the Amazon Synod and what is truly at stake. Following that, the, a brief commentary that will include a truly disturbing piece of news that will answer a question that the good Cardinal ends his statement with. First, the statement by Cardinal Walter Brandmuller. What is at stake? It is not about the Amazon, but rather, about everything. By Cardinal Walter Brandmuller. It would be a fatal error to think that the promoters of the current Synod of Bishops were truly concerned only about the well-being of the indigenous tribes of the Amazon forests. They are, rather obviously, being instrumentalized in order to push an agenda which concerns the universal church, and which has its roots largely in the 19th century. What is here at stake is not more and is not less than the Catholic faith, the Judeo-Christian faith, plain and simple. First, one here has to ask the decisive, fundamental question. What is religion anyway? It is nearly uncontested that religion is an essential element of human existence. However, it is not clear at all, or generally known, what it means. There exists answers to that very question that are quite contradictory. In essence, the question is whether religion is either the result of human attempts to preserve and manage one's own existence, that is to say, a human cultural product or whether it is to be understood otherwise. In the first case, religion stems from the reflection on the experience of existential depths of the person, that is to say, his finality. But that means that religion is nothing else but man's encounter with himself. This, then, would also be the consequence of the cult of reason as promoted by the Enlightenment. Here now, and we remember Rousseau, the ideal of the noble savage appears, in contrast to the enlightened European autonomous thinker. Religion as an encounter with oneself is an understanding of religion which indeed has considerable consequences, inasmuch as the developments in a person's life necessarily can bring forth changes, if not contradictions, of such religious experiences. Here then also the notion of evolution comes in, which means that, along with the progression of human development, there takes place also a development of the religious self-awareness. As a result, changing new insights may then exceed and replace insights that were earlier gained. Thus, it can lead to a step backwards, but a step which is seen as progress, a falling behind the culture of Europe, as in the case of the Amazon. The history of the Judeo-Christian religion stands here in sharp contrast to this notion of religion as self-realization of man. When Jews and Christians speak of religion, with its forms of expression in, mor in doctrine, morals, and cult, then they mean the way and manner with which man responds to extra or supra-worldly reality, which comes to him from outside. In plain language, it is about man's response to the Creator's self-communication, revelation to his creature, man. This is an actual dialogical event between God and man. God speaks, in whatever form, and man gives an answer. It is a dialogue. The religious concept of modernism, on the other hand, means a monologue. A man remains alone with himself. This dialogical event started with God's calling upon man, as the history of the people of Israel testifies. God's address to his chosen people took the place in the course of an eventful history that, at each step, led to a higher level. The letter to the Hebrews begins with the words, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son. The Gospel of St. John calls this Son the Incarnate Word of the Eternal God. 
He is, and he brings the final revelation, which can be found in the written form in the biblical books and in the authentic oral tradition of the community of disciples chosen by Jesus Christ, out of which the church grew. All this happened once and for all and is universally valid with regard to space and time. But this means, with regard to our concrete problem of the Amazon Synod, that the fact, as described above, exclude a concept of religion which has some kind of geographical or tempor temporary limits. But that means that also an Amazonian church is theologically unthinkable. It is the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, and therefore Roman, church to whom the transmission of the gospel and the transmission of Christ's grace to all people of all times have been entrusted, and to whom the light and strength of God's Spirit is promised for the fulfillment of this mission. She, the Church, lives up to this mission, with the help of the Holy Ghost, by fulfilling her magisterial and her pastoral ministry throughout history. This having been made clear from the outset, an almost alarming observation has now to be pointed out. The instrumentum laboris of the Synod contains, apart from, from just five rather marginal quotations, no reference whatsoever to councils and the papal magisterium. Particularly spectacular is the total absence of Vatican II, apart from two rather marginal references. The fact that such important and thematically relevant documents as the Decree on the Mission Activity of the Church, ad gentes, quite apart from the major constitutions of the Liturgy, Revelation, and the Church, are at no point quoted, is simply incomprehensible. The same applies to the post-conciliar magisterium and the important encyclicals. This ignoring of the doctrinal tradition of the Church, and the fact that in its place, almost exclusively the Latin American Synod of Apparacida of the year 2007 is quoted, can only be understood as a spectacular break with previous history. Moreover, this quasi-absolutizing of this assembly of Apparacida also raises the question of the Latin American understanding of ecclesial communio on the universal level. Finally, let us consider, in passing, an open contradiction in the instrumentum laboris concerning the decree on the mission activity of the church, ad gentes. This decree states, number 12, that the church in no way wishes to intrude into the politics, namely the politics of the mission countries, and therefore does not claim any worldly authority. This is a clear statement of a conciliar document, which, however, is diametrically opposed to by large parts of the Instrumentum Laboris. In short, the authors of the Instrumentum Laboris ignore the Second Vatican Council, and, as mentioned, all of the documents of the post-conciliar magisterium interpreting the Church. But this means, as also already mentioned, a break with a dogmatically binding tradition actually also with the universality of the church. The fact that this break is, so to speak, being put into action in an underhanded fashion, i.e. in a hidden and secretive manner, is all the more disturbing. The method practiced here, however, follows the model of Amoris Laetitia, where the attempt to cancel out the doctrine of the church is to be found in the now much-discussed footnote 351. Looking back now on what has been said, it may have become clear that the disputes over the Amazon Synod are only very superficially about the indigenous population of the Amazon, which is itself quite small in numbers. Rather, the frightening question that arises whether the protagonists of this Synod are not more concerned with the attempt to secretly replace a religion as man's answer to the call of its creator by a pantheistic natural religion of man 
namely by a new variant of modernism from the beginning of the 20th century, it is difficult not to think of that eschatological text of the New Testament. Now it is up to the assembled bishops of the Amazon Synod, and finally to Pope Francis himself, whether such a break with the Church's constitutive tradition can come to happen despite the inevitable dramatic consequences. The remarks of Pope Francis about the expected fate of the Instrumentum Laboris, can they awaken hope? So while I think this is generally positive, there is something maddening about this, about Cardinal Brandmuller being outraged that the Second Vatican Council is being ignored. How about the fact that the Synod is the logical outcome of a council that called for embracing the world and opening the, the windows of the church to the world and greater ecumenism? How about the fact that in the post-conciliar era, the standard operating procedure has been to ignore the fact that the Catholic Church actually existed prior to that council, which by the admission of its own organizers was not infallible and not binding on the consciences of the faithful anyway? Until these prelates understand this, and until they understand that the council they so stridently defend was the coming out party of the same modernists they're decrying now, nothing will be done. This crisis will deepen. You have to address the problem at its source, and while the council was not the source of the problem, the council was its coming out party and where they, where they seized their power. But I want to answer his question that he ended his statement with about hope. And to answer his question, will Francis's statement at the end of the Synod inspire hope? I think we received a hint with this move by Francis. Headline, Pope Francis inaugurates Anima Mundi, Ethnological Museum of Vatican Museums. The article is from Zenit. Now, if you don't know what anima mundi means, well, the anima Christi means soul of Christ. Anima mundi means soul of the world. Here we go with more paganism. But let's see what the news actually is. Maybe I'm going off the deep end here. Francis had these words to say at its opening. Quote, Beauty unites us. It invites us to live in human brotherhood, countering the culture of resentment, racism, and nationalism, which is always lurking. May this ethnological museum preserve its specific identity over time and remind everyone of the value of harmony and peace between peoples and nations. He said he hoped the exhibit will make the voice of God resound in those who visit this collection. Okay, then. The museum is called the Soul of the World Museum. Is the world God now? I don't get it. But Francis went further, saying that the Vatican museums are meant to represent everyone in the world and to ensure that no one feels left out. So yes, it's a museum for inclusion because that is somehow now a Catholic value. It sounds universalist to me. But let's continue. Quoting the Zenit article, quote, The Pope said that those who enter the Anima Mundi Ethnological Museum should feel there is room for them, their people, tradition, and culture. The European, the Indian, the Chinese, the native of the Amazonian or Congolese forest, of Alaska, of the Australian desert, or of the islands of the Pacific, he said, are all represented in the shadow of the Dome of St. Peter's, close to the heart of the Church and the Pope. This is because art is not something uprooted, but is born from the heart of peoples. It is a message from the heart of peoples to the heart of the peoples. The Pope said that at the Ethnological Museum, a person's art is accorded the same passion and care as the masterpieces of the Renaissance, the Greek or Roman art which attracts millions of people every year. Here there is a special place for dialogue, for openness to the other, and for encounter. End quote. And there you have it. More conciliar word salad that has little to do with Christ, but has everything to do with secular politics and embracing a secular agenda, and in, the, and in so doing, embraces paganism. Wonderful. 
So expecting a good response from Francis after the Synod ends this Sunday. Remember, this Sunday is the Feast of Christ the King on the old calendar. And no, I don't think it's a coincidence that this monstrosity of a synod began with a pagan ritual on the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi and ends on the old Feast of Christ the King. It's all too perfect for a synod that is embracing eco-occultism and instigating massive apostasy. And all of this was launched with the Pact of the Catacombs, back in the 1960s, at the close of the Council, when a group of bishops and others met in secret to promote the spirit of Vatican II. In the name of the poor, of course. Always revolutionaries do things in the name of the poor. Sunday, the following clip broke into the news, with a new Pact of the Catacombs having been announced brazenly. If you're not familiar with the Pact of the Catacombs, I have a video on the Pact of the Catacombs I did about a year ago. Just ask, and I can put it, I can pin it in the comments. But unlike the first, this Pact of the Catacombs was public. This time, they're calling it the Pact of the Catacombs for the Common Home. Led by Cardinal Humes, this is a renewal of the spirit of Vatican II. Whereas the first pact set off the firestorm of liberation theology, the second is going to reinforce liberation theology and give it a formal home in the hierarchy. See for yourself. I know that didn't look like much, but trust me when I say that they're now pushing to formally democratize the church. The original pact of the catacombs had only a handful of bishops and cardinals and priests there. This involved a lot of laity, and now they are leveling the church. That is part of the end game here. This is why I so stridently oppose an end to clerical celibacy. It's why I stridently oppose all ways of trying to bring egalitarianism and other Masonic ideals into the Catholic Church. Dark days are ahead, my friends. Stay close to the faith. Maintain the faith at all costs. Stay in a state of grace at all costs. Thank you for listening. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.